Father, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege you give us to be here in your house and in your presence. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to fellowship and worship your name. And I pray, Lord, that you may uh, receive our worship as a living sacrifice, something that comes from our hearts, and that your name will be glorified uh, by every word, by every uh, note that we sing, by every word we say, by every reading we have, that all may be done for the glory of your name. Lord, I ask you that you may use me now as your instrument, that in spite of my uh, human limitations, uh, your word may come out alive this morning and effect the changes and transformations in our lives. I ask, Lord, that every worshiper here will be open and sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that we will allow, Lord, these words to come right through and, and sit in our minds and hearts and uh, prompt us to allow these changes in our lives. Bless every family represented here. Bless every child. Bless each and every one of us. May we be able to focus on your message today. I ask you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And so last week uh, we talked about this gift of life. And so just maybe for the benefit of those who are not here, I'd like to uh, recap quickly uh, some of the things we talked about last week. And one of them was that God created us by making use of two basic components, right? Which two basic components were those? One was the dust of the ground, and the other was the, the breath of life. Now, the dust of the ground, which had been created by God Himself, was here on earth, and God came and gave something that only He possesses, this breath of life. And so, every time you breathe in and you breathe out, uh, you know that you are alive because God has put this breath of life in you. But the breath of life is more than just the air that we breathe. The breath of life is what is this life-giving principle, is what actually makes you alive and what allows you to be alive and to function in this world. And so God used those two basic components, the breath of life and uh, the dust of the ground and the breath of life. That's what the Bible says in Genesis 2 verse 7. There have been many different theories as to how God created or how a man's existence came to be. But the Bible is clear in Genesis 2 7 that the Lord, formed, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul or a living being. But this living being, even though it was created by two basic, uh, by the use of two basic components, this living being now is a very complex creature, is a very uh, whole integrated unit. It's indivisible, the human being as it is. And I think we all will agree that the human being, the live, uh, the, the living soul, the living being, the human being as we are now is much more than just the dust of the ground. Because when God breathed the breath of life, Adam did not became, become a clump of dust that is moving around. Uh, Adam was much more, and we are much more than just a clump of dust that goes around. We are this complex uh, machinery of human life. 
And so something in the breath of life, something in this life-given principle of God is able to make a clump of dust, a, a dusty form into this wonderful living human being, this complex creature that we are now. And I read last week, and I'll read it again, this quote from Ellen White in the book, The Ministry of Healing, on page 415, where she says, beautifully, The human form was perfect in all its arrangements, but it was without life. Then a personal self-existing God breathed into that form the breath of life, and man became a living, intelligent being. All parts of the human organism were set in action. The heart, the arteries, the veins, the faculties of the mind all began their work and man became a living soul. And so we also saw last week that the Bible uses several different words that are aspects and and maybe even parts of the body. But the Bible uses those words to also refer to the entire creature. And uh, we also saw that when the Bible says uh, something about the heart or the body or the flesh or the spirit, it may be meaning the entire, the entire human being. And we, see, we saw that clearly in some passages. In such a way that if the heart is merry, the whole person is merry. If the body is ailing, the entire human being is ailing. If the flesh hurts, the whole person hurts. And if the spirit is broken, the, bro- the bones may what? What does the Bible say? A broken spirit dries up the bones. So if the spirit is broken, is crushed, the bones might even dry up. So the entire person will suffer as, as a result of that. And we also saw last week that not only the Bible uses these words to represent the entire human being. Something happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And if Adam and Eve were created as this whole integrated unit, once they disobeyed God and once they sinned, the entire human being sinned. There was no single particle of the human being that did not sin. The entire human being, the entire man fell and disobeyed God and fell and was as a consequence separated from God. Because God is holy, sin separated us from Him. In such a way that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, in Genesis 6, 5, as God was uh, looking down and seeing how evil humanity had become, God says, "The, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart were, was only evil continually. And so even though man came from God's hands as this perfect whole integrated unit, now the entire man has fallen and all of his faculties were dedicated to wickedness. Then Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 18 verse 4 that the heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We understand then that the whole human being has become corrupt and sinful as a result of sin. And Jesus himself in Matthew 15, 19, he warned, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. But no one needs to be uh, without hope. 
And even though we realize that we, as humanity, we fell from our, from our original state, we need not be desperate because God himself took the steps necessary. He took upon himself the mission of restoration of the human being into his original state. Isn't that wonderful? That even though man would have sinned, God would still come after us and provide all the means necessary for our restoration, restoration into the original state in which we were created. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22, 21 and 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 say, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So uh, in summary, this is what we talked about last week. About creation, how God created the human being, and what this living soul has become. And we talked about the fall, and we talked about the restoration that God has provided the means for. Everyone who believes, everyone who accepts Jesus as their Savior, everyone who desires this restoration, this healing from this uh, disease we have been infected with called sin, Everyone can achieve that because God has provided all the means. And in Jesus Christ, He has provided a restoration. In Jesus Christ, as Ellen White says, God has provided the remedy for the sin of our soul. But what about what comes next? What about the day when the breath no longer is connected with the body? What about the day when people... Breathe their last. And the body is left without air and without life. What happens next then? Well, you may remember a, a, of a TV personality. His name is Larry King. And on the day that his show, which was called Larry King Live, on the day his show uh, celebrated 20 20 years of uh, airing, of broadcast. On the 20th anniversary of this show, Larry King Live, he was interviewed by another uh, anchor, another news person called Barbara Walters. And Barbara Walters interviewed this man who had become fam famous by interviewing others. And she asked him some direct and some very revealing questions. And two of the most telling responses of Larry King came when Barbara Walters probed about fear and faith. And Barbara Walters asked Larry King this, What is your greatest fear? And he immediately replied, My greatest fear is death. Now this interview occurred in 2015, so 14, almost 15 years ago. When Larry King was at the top, at the very top of his career, and he, he had much to lose. He had money, but he could lose it or any other thing. But none of that seemed to matter when compared to the fear that he had of death. And Barbara Walters' follow-up question was this. Do you believe in God? And Larry King said, I'm not sure. I'm an agnostic. Now, regardless of how much successful you may be in life, 
regardless of how, my, how much famous you may have become, uh, if we have not the assurance of Scripture and the assurance that God has created you, and He has a purpose, He has a plan, and even when we have failed, the Lord is willing to restore us, if you do not have that assurance, everything else will be very shaky. Everything else will be very unsure and insecure. insecure. So, uh, we need to have this assurance, and this is what we're trying to do here today. We are trying to look into Scripture and see what God has promised is the afterlife. What, according to God's Word, is this future life, and what happens after death. Well, one word that I didn't mention today, that I mentioned last week, I haven't mentioned that word yet, but I mentioned it last week, is one word that has probably been the most... Uh, uh, misinterpreted or the most controversial of all the words the Bible uses to refer to the hum human being. And uh, I talked about the heart today, I talked about the flesh, the body, and I talked about the spirit, which is the wind, the breath. But I didn't say the word specifically, the word soul. And the Bible uses the word soul quite extensively. And uh, we talked last week that when the Bible refers to the soul, it is referring to the human existence. Soul is, is the one, the soul is the one that points to the human being as this indivisible unit. The soul, in the biblical sense, is more than just the body. The soul, in the biblical sense, is more than just the breath. It is more than just one's mind. It is more than just one's ideas, thoughts, and emotion. In the strict biblical sense, the soul is this complex, integrated unity that we call human being. The living being, the living soul. Interestingly enough, the Bible never ever refers to the soul as immortal. There is never the expression, the immortal soul, or the soul being immortal. The Bible refers to the living soul. So one of the conditions for the soul to exist is that there must be what? life because the soul is the living soul if there is no life then there is no soul once the breath of life returns to God once it's disconnected from the body there is no longer a soul I hope this is clear to each and every one of us because the soul began to be began to exist the soul became when God breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils. But once this breath of life goes away and returns to God, there is no longer a soul. So let's look at two texts here. One is Genesis 2 verse 7. We read this already today and we read it last week, but let's go back to it. Because I want to reaffirm in each and every one of our minds this basic biblical concept of how God brought man into existence. In Genesis 2, 7, the Bible says, I still hear some people flipping their pages, so once you get there, you can say an amen. And I know it's time for me to start reading. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Amen. And the Bible says, 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So the Bible is clear that God used the dust of the ground and breathed his breath of life, this life-giving principle that only God possesses. Now I want you to come with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and then verse 7. Ecclesiastes comes right after Proverbs, which comes by right after Psalms. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. Solomon is talking here about, the, about when people age and uh, when he himself was aging and, and realizing that life was coming to an end. Life was potentially coming to, to its end. And he's talking about all of this and he starts the chapter actually saying, Remember, now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And so the time to delight in the Lord, the time to remember the Lord and, and have Him in, in your heart is when you're young. And carry that uh, over your life existence here. Because the days will come, the years will come when there is an ache here, there is a pain somewhere else. And you may come to the point where you say, I have no longer pleasure in life because life is so difficult. And so Solomon is working on that theme and he's saying, keep the Lord in your heart because these days will come. And he uses several different metaphors to talk about the last days of life. Then he comes to verse 7 and he says, he talks about the end of all it. And he says, the dust, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit or the breath will return to whom? To God who gave it. So we might very well consider that Ecclesiastes 12.7 is like the reverse formula from Genesis 2.7. In Genesis 2.7, God put together the dust of the ground and the breath of life. And in Ecclesiastes 12.7, Solomon is saying that one day the body will return to the dust, to the earth as it was, and the breath of life will return to God who gave it. Now, <clears throat> what about then... Here is my question for us to think about. If the dust goes back to the earth where it belongs, and the breath of life goes back to God who gave it, what happens to the soul? What happens to the soul? I, th I think I said that before, but I'm, I want to make sure you're all on the same page. Uh, what is the soul then? The soul is the, the human being, right? It's living being. That's how the Bible names it, the living soul. And then if the dust goes back to the ground where it came from, and the breath of life goes back to God who gave it and who possesses it, what happens to the soul? It ceases to exist. It no longer exists. But what about, what about the person I am? Now, would you say that I today... At the age, at the high age of 54 years old, would you say that I am the same person, even though you didn't meet me, meet me when I was 10 years old? Would you just say, based on your own experience, that I am the same person today that I was when I was 10 years old? Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not really. I'm still the same Ivaldo, but uh, my name is still the same. 
Uh, my blood type is still the same. Uh, my DNA code is still the same. But I, I am not the same person, essentially. And none of you are, right? You are no longer the same person you were when you were 3 years old, when you were 10, or even 20 years old if you are older than that. So what happens to all of these experiences? What happens to all of the knowledge that I have accumulated? And some people uh, question about that. Where does all of that go then? And all that I have learned, all that I have experienced, all that I have memorized, where does all of that go? Well, let's see what Ecclesiastes 9, 5 and 6 says to begin with. So that's the first step. Ecclesiastes, in the same book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says here, For the living know that they will die. But the dead know what? They know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. And so one thing is clear from this text is that everything you have learned, everything you've memorized, all of your emotions, all of your love, all of the hatred that you may have felt, all of the envy, all of that will perish upon death. And nevermore will any person who died have any participation in anything that happens here under the sun. But the question still stands, what happens to all of this? What happens to, to our memories, to our minds? Uh, where does it go if it goes anywhere? Some people find uh, uh, that this idea, the idea that the human being ceases to exist altogether, is... is is not comfortable. It's, it's an uneasy feeling. Some people think, well, that's a, that's a difficult idea to grasp. All of a sudden, everything has, has ended. It ceased. Well, that's what the Bible says. But what about the knowledge that a human being may have accumulated throughout life? All of the life experiences, all of the personality traits, all of your personal preferences. What happens? Well, some people say it must be stored somewhere. It must be stored somewhere so that upon resurrection, God will be able to put back together that into the person that's being resurrected. But let's take it easy because uh, it's true that God has records. God has a record. The Bible is clear about that. The Bible is clear that uh, when I say let's take it easy so we can understand this clearly. Uh, when the Bible says that God has books, God indeed has records. Now, uh, don't ask me if the books in heaven are like the books we have here today, you know, with uh, black ink on, on white paper, or if it's like scrolls, parchment, or if, or if it's uh, something really uh, beyond the technology we have today. Uh, it doesn't really matter, and I don't want to speculate about that. Uh, but one thing I know that the Bible is clear that God has records, God has books. And so everything has been been stored and God knows everything but we should not attempt to limit God uh, after our own limitations we should not to limit God because we are limited somehow we should not attempt to put God in a box because we ourselves are 
somehow limited. God knows everything and He knows the end from the beginning. And God did not need you. Listen to me. God, did, God does not need you to live one more day until He finds out what you're going to do on that day. Are you following me? God did not have to wait until today to know what you're going to do today. Does that make sense? God knew that already. And so the knowledge God, that God has is not limited to what you have done. God knows what you'll do. And all of that is in God's mind somehow. And so look at this text that comes from Psalm 139 and verse 16. Psalm 139 verse 16. This is in a psalm where David is uh, exalting God. For his uh, creation and how marvelously David himself was created. And he comes to verse 16 where he says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there, when as yet there were none of them. And so everything that you are. The person you are today compared to the person you were when you were a child. Everything that we'll do going beyond today. All of that God already knows. All of that God knows and it is in His book. Whatever that book might be, it, it is already there. I hope this is clear from this text. Because David is saying, you saw everything even when I was yet informed. And in your book... You had a record of everything that I would still do. When as of yet, there were none of my days yet. Do we all see this? And so what happens to the person I am, what happens to the thoughts I have, and what happens to the memories I have, what happens to my personal preferences when I die, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to speculate about that because they were already in God's book. We know that life ceases, but all of my thoughts were already in God's book. All of my days were already there. Now let's come here to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Are we all good still? I hope I'm not cramming too much information into one sermon. But I hope this is essential that we are clear uh, on because there is, there is a lot of speculation, there is a lot of confusion in the Christian world and outside of the Christian world. And we want to allow the Bible to speak for itself. So because some people believe, because some people have a different understanding of what the soul is, because many Christians... Uh, and this is no criticism, it's just a statement that many Christians understand that we have a soul inside of us, right? That we are not a soul. We have a soul and upon death, the soul will leave and will go somewhere else. Because of that thinking, uh, this one text here in First Thessalonians has been somehow uh, misunderstood. So I want you to come with me to First Thessalonians 4 verses 13 and 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
verses 13 and 14. And here Paul is going to talk about the resurrection. He's going to talk about hope. That we should not be hopeless. But we should have hope because, uh, because Jesus is, live, is living. Jesus has risen again and He's alive today. And because of that, we also have the guarantee that we will have eternal life. So verses 13, 14, Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so let me stop here. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be aware of what actually happens upon death. Because I don't want, to, I don't want you to be uh, afraid or to be hopeless as others who have not this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so, uh, when people who understand, who believe that there is a soul in, inside of us, and this soul goes to heaven upon death, they understand that Paul is saying here that Jesus, God will send, will bring, that's the word that I have here, uh, God will bring with Him, with Jesus, those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, their souls are in heaven, and when Jesus comes, Jesus will bring the souls and will put it back in the bodies of those who have died. I want to ask you one question based on the text only. We don't even need to analyze anything in the Greek or whatever. Based on this text, does the text tell you which direction Jesus is bringing them? Is Jesus bringing them down or is Jesus bringing them up? It doesn't say. It says that Jesus is bringing them. And that's exactly what the Greek verb means. That Jesus is taking them from point A and bringing them to point B. Whatever point A is and whatever point B is. So the Bible is not saying that Jesus will bring them down. That must be clear. But if we look at the context, if you look at verses 13 and 14, Paul is saying, I don't want you to be hopeless as those who don't have hope. Because if we believe that Jesus died, okay, so follow me. If we believe that Jesus died, and upon Jesus' death, what happened? He was buried, right? And he was buried in the ground, on the earth, right here. So if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so when Jesus rose again, where did Jesus go? He went up to heaven. If we believe this, if we believe that this is the movement that Jesus had, if we believe that this is what happened, He died and rose again and went up to heaven then, even so God will bring with Him, just like Jesus was resurrected, God will bring from the tombs those who died in Christ and those who have fallen asleep, and God will bring them just like it happened with Jesus, it will happen with them. This is simply what Paul is saying here. That Jesus will bring them from where they are and will take them to heaven just like Jesus himself rose from the dead. And so going forward after declaring this, Paul continues to say, for this, is say, for this we say to you. He gives now a more detailed explanation of what's going to happen upon Jesus' coming. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. He goes back to the theme of resurrection of those who are in, in the tombs. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Then he says, comfort one another with these words. Don't be hopeless. Comfort one another. And so God is going to bring with Jesus those who are falling asleep, have fallen asleep. And then will join them and will live with Jesus not only for a thousand years in heaven, but for all eternity on this new earth, this renewed, renovated uh, and cleansed earth. Now I want to go back uh, before I finish to the scripture text for today, right? Because our scripture reading for today talks about a resurrection. That is found in, in uh, John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Gospel of John, chapter 11. And we read verses 25 and 26. But before we go back there, this is a scripture that comes in the context of an event that was a sad event that involved separation, that involved a death. And uh, Lazarus' sisters sent a word to Jesus that Lazarus was ill. And someone came to Jesus and said, your friend Lazarus is very ill. And Jesus said, okay, this illness is not for death. But this illness is, going, is, is something that is for the glory of the Lord, for the glory of God. And interestingly enough, the Bible says that Jesus loved Lazarus, that Jesus loved Martha, that Jesus loved Mary. And because of that, he remained two more days where he was. That may sound awkward, or if Jesus really loved them, he would rush and go and help Lazarus. But Jesus stayed two more days, and we are not told how long still Jesus took until he went there to meet Lazarus and to visit them. But what we know is that once Jesus arrives there, the Bible is clear to say that Lazarus was dead already for how long? Four days. When Jesus arrives there, he is dead and he's already entombed for four days. Now, some of you may think, why four days? Why not five? Why not three? Well, that so happens that this was when Jesus arrived there. But I will say this. Uh, some scholars believe and have studied this uh, that there may have been a custom they have, may have been a, a belief that upon death the soul, the spirit of the person or the soul would still be hovering around trying to re-enter the body and they would have to wait for three days if after three days that didn't happen the person did not come back to life then it means that the person is really dead other peoples believe that the custom was a little different. It was simply because some people <clears throat> might be in a, in a comatose state. They might be in a coma and they might be buried that way. 
and they were not sure and maybe you know three days after the person comes back comes back to life then the person was still alive now after the third day something would start to be happening or even before that because there is no more life the body would start to decay the body would start to decompose and so a bad smell would start to come out and so by the fourth day people would be absolutely convinced and sure even by the bad smell that was coming <clears throat> that the person was indeed dead and so the fact that Jesus came there on the fourth day and he performed the miracle of bringing Lazarus back to life <clears throat> told them that while this was a real resurrection, this was not a trick, this was, was not the fact that the person was in a coma, Lazarus was actually dead and Jesus brought him back to life. The body had already, to, uh, had already started to decompose. That's what Martha says to Jesus in verse 39 Jesus said take away the stone and then Martha the sister of uh, of him who was dead of Lazarus said to Jesus Lord by this time there is a stench for he has been dead four days already so the body was very likely uh, not smelling good but Jesus told them to remove the stone anyway now I want to go back here to verses 17 and I want you to follow with me as I read this, <clears throat> as I read the word of the Lord. John chapter 11, verses 17 to 27. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews have joined, had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus says these key words, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is come into this world and so friends we see that Jesus tells Martha that because Martha believed in the resurrection anyhow and she said I know that one day he will come back to life but Jesus is saying well if you believe in the resurrection I have a surprise for you I have good news for you I am the resurrection and I am the life and whoever believes in me will never die what kind of death is Jesus talking about? What kind of life is Jesus talking about? He's talking about this life-given principle. If you believe in me, even though you, you may go through physical death, you can know that you will never, ever die again once you come back to life, once I resurrect you. I am the resurrection. I'll bring you back to life if you believe in me and you will never, ever die. 
Because I have in me this life-given principle. Now, we are not yet mortal. But we can start to experience life in Christ right now. We can start experiencing real life in Jesus Christ today, right now. And if you have not yet experienced this, if you have not yet joined to Jesus and felt the joy that He can bring to your life, He's still inviting you. I am the resurrection and the life. Come to me and it will change your life completely. I'll change your entire worldview and I'll transform you from the inside out. And Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me today. Jesus is calling you and he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asks, do you believe this? Do you believe what I'm saying? That I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe him? I believe in a physician when I put my case into that physician's hands. And trust him to cure me. I believe in a lawyer when I leave my case in his hands and trust him to plead for me. I believe in a banker when I put my, bank, my money there in the bank and allow the banker to keep it on my behalf. I believe in my Savior when I take Him to be my Savior, when I put my helpless case into His hands and trust Him to do what I cannot do for myself, to save me from my sin. Do you believe this? You believe there is such a person as Jesus and that He is the sinner Savior. You do well if you believe that. But that is only a partial and incomplete faith. To believe that a certain doctor exists and has a large practice is not to believe personally in that doctor. True faith contains a moral as well as an intellectual element to it. And when the former is wanting the latter, can avail not, not much but little. Do you repose your moral confidence in Him, in Jesus, as being to you the Savior that you need? As one whose character and office are congruous to the wants of your nature. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. But he represents you. He represents himself rather as the Savior. You and I are lost. But he has died to find us. You are dead. But he presents himself as the resurrection and the life. And the point is this. Do you take him by faith? To be what he reveals himself to be. That is, do you believe him? And if you can say in your heart, yes, I believe in him. Then the Holy Spirit of God will do his work. All your sins have been laid on the Lamb of God who bore the sin of the world. There is no longer a case against you. The summons, summons is dismissed. There is no condemnation. You were pronounced acquitted and you were accepted and you are beloved. But believing in Jesus is a major, major, is the, the essential prerequisite to obtaining what we ask from God. My prayer is that to the question of Jesus, 
My prayer is that to the question that Jesus asked Martha. When he said, do you believe this? My prayer is that your answer and my answer will be a clear yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. I read this story the other day. I want to finish with it. A marshal in Napoleon's army who was devotedly and enthusiastically attached to him was mortally wounded in the battle. As the last struggle drew near and he lay dying in his tent, he sent for his chief. Napoleon came. The poor man thought his emperor could do anything for him. And he earnestly pleaded with his leader to save his life. The emperor sadly shook his head and said, You can no longer serve as a good soldier. There is nothing I can do for you. And he turned away and walked away. But as the dying man felt the cold, merciless hand of death drawing upon him, irresistibly behind the curtain of the unseen world, he was still heard to cry out, Save me, sir. Save me, Napoleon. Save me, sir. But in the hour of death, that soldier sadly discovered that even the powerful Napoleon, even the most powerful of men, could not give him life. It is only Jesus and Jesus alone that can give you life. And my prayer again is that we will say like Martha, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe.